You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. I wish I My name is Michael Lawrence. I'm the technical editor of Live Sound International Magazine and Pro Sound Web. And I'm joined this episode by our recent guest and new, uh, I think she's going to be our ringer co-host, Miss Willa Snow. Hello, Willa. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Uh, well, you know, I think it was it was such a, I think we're stuck with you. I think that's what's happening <laughs> now. I'm just realizing we can't get rid of you so easily. So yeah, thank you for being with me tonight. <laughs> I'm okay with this. and uh our guest tonight is my friend daniel ramirez who's an independent front of house engineer and tour manager currently working with the wood brothers um i was fortunate enough to go out and visit daniel at their wood brothers tour stop in albany new york a couple weeks ago fantastic show i really enjoyed the show i really enjoyed chatting with daniel and learning what he was up to and and kind of seeing uh how he handles everything and so i'm really glad to have him on the show with us daniel thanks for being here man Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So where are you joining us from physically right now? I am at my home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And how's that? Uh, how's Pennsylvania? I haven't been there in a while. I, I, I've liked it the times that I've been there. I'm a big Philly fan. I like yeah. the city of Philly. Me too. Yeah. I live here I live here for a reason. I like it. It's a, it's, it's a big enough of a town to get some culture. It's a small enough town that you feel like you're kind of out of the hubbub when, when you get home from a tour and uh it's a nice place to grow up and uh it's very and it's very close to you know all the huge production companies up in Lidditz are just 15 minutes down the road that's the hot spot there that's a good place to be um talking about growing up i mean how did you how did you get started in audio what was your journey that led you to where you are today um i was really into music and i was just one of those kids that like to take everything apart figure out how it worked <laughs> and uh you know mildly electrocute yourself on a regular basis <laughs> and uh so i was in some little local bands you know starting in high school and i was always kind of the one that would you know you know you get to these points you're like oh we have to figure out we got a gig but it's at a little cafe that doesn't have a pa we need to figure out how people are going to hear us and uh or you know in the studio i was always the one that was just asking a million questions and trying to figure out how things worked just so that i could communicate how we wanted things to sound you know and uh that moved on i i started working at a local venue called the chameleon club while i was in college um a friend of mine uh was an engineer there and his brother actually was a pm so it was very nepotistic but uh everyone was doing good work so i think it was fair um and i was the first the monitor engineer there and then i started getting front of house gigs and then i eventually ended up production managing um and then i ended up getting a couple science degrees in an unrelated field of geology actually more related than you'd think uh because there's a lot of seismology and stuff which is basically audio um I did that for five years and ended up tiring of it when there was a big shift in the industry in Pennsylvania towards oil and gas. And that's when I decided to give touring a shot. And that sort of snowballed into a bona fide career. You know what? I was It was really interesting, the, the seismology bit, because I, do, I did hear from someone, it's unsubstantiated, but I did hear that the original technology behind Autotune was actually... Uh, for something about detecting some sort of waves in the Earth's crust in terms of 
you know, identifying those frequencies and stuff. And that sort of, you know, was co-opted into the audio plugin that we know and uh, love today. I don't wow. know if it's true. That's really cool. interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> but yeah, they were my, my first job as a geophysicist. Um, wow. Was my first job out of college was as a geophysicist. And they were really, really impressed when the new kid was able to save them like a $12,000 repair on their incredibly complex multi-core snake that they were using for seismology work with like a few hours in the shop with a soldering iron. <laughs> Your stock probably went up real quick. Yeah, my that. stock. Actually, <laughs> actually, what happened is I got laid off about two months later, uh, for business reasons, not 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 any fault of my own. I like to think. Well, um, I, I do want to say, you know, being kind of in the venue and seeing you go about your work day and being the tour manager and dealing with all the things that the tour manager has to deal with. I mean, it was really an incredibly relaxed vibe that I got. And, you know, I, I, I'm sort of around that atmosphere a lot and it's often a lot more hectic and a lot more stressful and just tensions are running higher. And so it was, it was a really nice mood that you sort of set for your people. And I think that, you know, lends itself to success. So that, that was pretty cool, man. Wow. That's uh that's one of the nicest compliments I've ever heard. That's really what I'm going and, for. And we're only five <laughs> minutes in, so. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that comes from working with a crew that you can be really confident in and uh, having things organized enough that, that you can just go in with confidence. And, you know, it's also really nice uh, with that band in particular. It's only three musicians, you know, and they're all very sweet individuals. So um, there's not a lot of outside forces creating tension. Um, I try to go for that relaxed vibe everywhere I go, but it makes it a lot easier when you have a crew that's ready to go there with you. And I also, you know, it was it, you, you were a relatively compact tour. You're not carrying a ton of stuff. You're mixing the IAMs for the artist in front of house, which is something I want to definitely touch on. But I mean, you had a couple of racks of outboard. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot going on. So it was a pretty efficient uh, production, you know, and I think that I would say that definitely contributes to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. It gives us it gives us more time in the day. It gives us less things that can go wrong. Um, you know, the necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. You know, and uh, we, the Wood Brothers, that band. I've been with them for about six years, and a lot has evolved over that time. When we first started, we were just in a van without even a trailer, um, doing venues not incredibly smaller than what we're doing now. Um, but as they ramped up we felt like we really needed to bring uh, a production that was appropriate to the room um, while still, I mean, really just still being able to afford it is what it comes down to. And um, and, and also as you get into bigger rooms and, and the palace where you saw us is, is one of those, you get into these rooms where you've got a really, really... Um, a really experienced union crew that knows exactly what they're doing and often are getting an entire semi out of the building in 45 minutes, you know? So if you've got a small crew and you're bringing a, um, uh, bringing production into the room like that, you kind of need to build it in such a way that you don't have seven guys that are trying to get home to their families wondering why the drum kit's still set up or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel a responsibility to the to the venues to try and keep it all manageable. 
Well, that is certainly considerate. I, I can also <laughs> say that I wish I wish a lot of the productions that I worked on uh, were that considerate. <laughs> um, but I think uh, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna turn it over to Will a little bit because she was telling me she's got some, you know, some production management tour management um, gigs on the horizon, um, and so you know, Will, study up. You know, this is your chance to to kind of get the secrets and uh, go in there and. And, and impress people with with your incredible tour management skills. Um, I would love to know, Daniel, uh, what are a couple of things that you wish you knew about tour management when you started that that you know were kind of like big lessons for you? Oh, geez, yeah, because I didn't really get into this wanting to be a tour manager. I was into audio, but um, you know, I started our walk, working with smaller bands. A lot of a lot of my early gigs, I was the only crew, so I kind of had to learn to do everything. Um, just the math of it is one thing. Um, doesn't matter quite as much when you're doing smaller rooms with door deals, but really learning how to settle a show and learning what expenses are are appropriate and being able to pick out the little places that sometimes people want to um, want to gloss over, um, but might put a little bit more money in the artist's pocket and and still be fair. You know, mm-hmm. I like I like to I. I take the approach that I want things to be fair for all parties, but I also don't want to leave money on the table for my artists. That's my primary care. So just understanding the math of all that stuff, which Willa, I think you would know, right? Because you you already do some production management and venue management. So you see it from the other side. A little bit, yeah. Um, so primarily I just deal with the gear, and oh, okay. I'm fortunate enough that uh, my the artists that I work with, they kind of do their own tour management right now. So I'm learning from them so I can take that burden off of their shoulders. And one thing that I've noticed, uh, at least uh, in the circles that I run in, the the way that they, they describe it is production management is gear and then tour management is people. And then one thing that is seldom mentioned to me, at least, is that tour management is people, yes, but it's also the finances. It's, um, it's so the finances. having... Yeah. Yeah, so having that that knowledge of basic accounting and then also having to manage the relationship between the the venue that or you know the booker that hired you your your band and making sure that that relationship is solid so that they don't, you know, maybe stiff you at the end of the night. Um and I was wondering Daniel, uh you mentioned uh you know glossing over certain things what if you don't mind going into that a little bit more what sort of things have you noticed that can commonly get glossed over i mean i i I don't want to i want to be careful that we're not approaching this as like promoters are all snakes that are trying to oh no trying to pull one over on you i i really don't think that's the case in general everybody feels like you know we're all in this together and if there's a way for everyone to make money that's the way it should be oh absolutely um but you know it's mostly just it's mostly just taking the time to actually look over those numbers. You know, I get, a, I get comments a lot from promoters that are just like, wow, a lot of times people just come in, they grab the spreadsheet printout and the check and they leave, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's really important to, in my opinion, to sit down and actually look at those numbers. Now, the other side of that, and this is something that takes a little bit of time, but if you pay attention to the math, at settlement and the numbers you're typically seeing is that, you know, if you're working on a deal that's a guarantee versus a split point, say, um, and you're nowhere near that split point, the last thing you want to do is keep the promoter there going over every single hospitality receipt or whatever, you know, because there's mm-hmm. not there's not any more money in it for your party at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. So 
you don't want to come across as just being a pain in the butt about things either, you know, and that's something that I feel like I made a couple early mistakes on. And um, I wish I could remember who it was. It's somebody, somebody that I ended up just working for my whole life or working with my whole life at a venue. You know, he had that conversation up front with me once early mm -hmm. on when I was kind of like, you know, it was one o'clock in the morning because I'm mixing the show. So that's the other thing that you got to kind of be considerate of is a band that has a dedicated tour manager. They're settling that show during the show mm. where if you're mixing the show, they're waiting for you at the end of the night. So that also goes towards efficiency. It's like, I need to be able to, if I want people to be happy with me at the end of the night, uh, which I do, it's really helpful to be able to pack up front of house in 20 minutes and go turn into a tour manager. Sure, absolutely. And, and if you don't have dedicated crew to do that for you, you gotta you gotta just do it with efficiency. You know, not not necessarily with your own personal speed. But mm -hmm. anyhow, this guy was very straightforward and and just told me pretty much what I just said. You know, like you're you're kind of wasting our time here. You seem like a good kid, uh, but this is not a good look. You know, and I appreciated that so much because it made me think back on how many other times I might've done that to people without realizing it, just kind of thinking I was doing my job without realizing there are times when if you have a sense for things, you can kind of look at it and say, all right, if I have any questions, I'll, I'll call you later because I know it's not going to affect our bottom line at all. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to pick your battles a little bit. And that of also course. taught me something that I think is really important in most aspects of this business uh, as far as my personal philosophy goes, which is just just being a straight shooter about stuff. You know, like, it's very, very rare that I get into a situation where where I'm trying to just pull one over on a venue in any way at all. You know, if I, I like to anticipate problems and discuss them in advance. Um, I think that uh, a big part of the job is just avoiding surprises. Mm -hmm. And, and... Also, and also just, uh, sorry, I'm babbling here, uh, avoiding surprises, but also not sucking the fun out of the rock and roll of the whole thing, you know, mm -hmm. like people don't, people don't want it to turn into something that's, that's so predictable that they might as well have an office job or something, you know, that's right, when people, right. that's when people sort of get burned out. You want to, you want to have fun with it. You want to accept the challenges of new venues that might not be exactly what you want to see every day you know you want to sure. you want to make that stuff fun rather than making it a drag because there's always going to be venue limitations and stuff like that and and if you cultivate an attitude where that's always a big bummer instead of like oh how fun we never get to do this kind of stuff anymore let's figure mm -hmm. it out um, plus that makes the the venue happy too so because i mean if you've played there once or maybe a chance you play there again and they'll be happy to see you again Absolutely. in the future as well so that creates that community yeah it's a very very limited pool limited pool of people that have the constitution to do this work for their whole mm -hmm. life you know so once you get past a certain age i feel like you definitely start seeing the same people over and over again sure everywhere and yeah, that, and that's the thing is i think everybody knows that these days you know it's not a flash in the mm -hmm. pan everyone everyone tries to make a career of it mm-hmm you know daniel there was there was something that i really admired um when when we were working, we we had a, a SPL rig set up at front of house, and I was kind of showing you some of the things that it could do. And we were talking about which metrics, you know, should we monitor during the show. Um, and while we were having that, that conversation, when your artist came up and started talking to you, 
Um, and it was amazing to me how you pointed to it and you explained it to him what it did and what the numbers meant um, in a completely different way than than you would discuss those things with me, um, but in a, in a way that was sort of in musician language. And, and that really drove home to me, like the importance of being able to talk to people in a way that um, will make sense to them. Um, and, you know, it also requires a pretty deep understanding of the topic to be able to do that, you know, to not just have one way to explain something, but to have six ways to explain something, depending on who you're explaining it to, you really have to understand what you're talking about. Um, and I thought that was really cool, you know, to kind of watch that interaction happen. Oh, that's a cool thing to pick up on. Um, yeah, that's actually a discussion that I've had with, uh, with those guys and with some other artists in general is that, um, there's a lot of people that are very technical, technically oriented, but they don't necessarily have like a, a a musician's brain as well, you know. And like I said, I was kind of always in bands growing up and everything, so I know what it's like to be on stage, and I also remember what it's like to not know all this technical stuff, you know. And um, I th- I think it's good. I I think it's a great skill for everybody to have. I don't think it's necessarily something that everybody can cultivate. There are some really talented engineers that are very, very technical, technically minded and come from a certain school that uh, to me feels a little old school, but in a very respectable way. Like I remember looking at videos of the Beatles recording and stuff and it's all guys in lab coats. And like I said, I, I came from a science background, so I'm so into that stuff. But um, all the technical jar- jargon and knowledge in the world doesn't necessarily mean anything to a guy that's just wondering why when he's asking you to turn something up, he's not perceiving it as getting turned up or something like that, you know? Um, and and the limitations in our field and, you know, you got you to gotta be able to explain how limiters work in a way that people understand if you're doing monitors because they have that technology in their packs and they might not really know what it means and they might not be able to make a personal decision on whether, whether they want to use that or not. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's something that I'm just kind of lucky to have because of the way that I grew into it or if it's something that can be cultivated, but I think that you just need to be, um, you need to be open to everybody's different personalities and everybody's different brains and, and try to relate to them in that way. Yeah, you know, and that's something that I've I've kind of spent a lot of time thinking about because my my background is is also in music. My 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 degree is actually in music, and so you know the way I would say um, we have a fifty five hertz problem in the room um, is you know I would say that a bit differently than to a bass player like your A strings really resonant in here. You know, it's the same statement, but it's 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 worded differently so that the person who I'm trying to get to understand something can understand it. And so I think, you know, that is, uh, that's a big thing that has helped me, um, particularly when I, I do a lot of one-offs, I work for a couple of college venues. And so I, I'm having an act coming in that I've not dealt with before, and I probably won't deal with again. And, you know, we really quickly have to get things on the right path and they don't know who I am and they don't know if I know anything at all or if I'm a complete dummy. Um, and so one of the things that I found helpful is to start off with a conversation in musical terms. So they will understand, okay, this guy speaks our language and he understands what we're trying to do here. And it might be like, you know, they have a really crazy vintage amp and I'll be like, Oh, that's pretty cool. Tell me about that. Or, you know, they have a pedal on their pedal board that I haven't seen. Tell me about that. And so by starting off kind of in the musical domain, um, what I've found is 
you know, by doing that, by finding those common communication threads later on, when I have to ask the guy to turn down or angle his amp differently or something, um, that is a lot um, more seamless of an interaction because of that common ground that we built up when we started. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is, you, if you go too far in the other direction, you know, like, I've learned pretty quickly a couple times if you bring up like uh getting delays right for phasing on stage or something like that you know you can get into such a rabbit hole with with people that haven't spent their entire life thinking about that stuff if if you give them enough you got to be careful about not giving them just enough knowledge that they bug out about it (laughs) (laughs) you know because i've certainly had that happen where you know, we're trying to figure out, like, with the bass player, with uh, the drummer, with his kick drum or something, why we're having some phasing issues with the monitors versus the PA versus what's going on on stage. And uh, we got we we made the mistake of getting into that that realm of like, well, you know, phase isn't all 180 degrees. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a time component, and. And that led to a couple days of like disastrous sound checks for me. So <laughs> you have to be careful not to teach so well that you give people a dangerous amount of knowledge too. I think it's. I think to me, it's what it's been about is establishing trust. Um, you know, if they if they know that I understand what they're trying to do from a musical perspective as an artist, you know, and and what's important in, in the artistic sense, you know, if I'm on board with that, and they can tell that, you know, what I found is their level of trust in me to handle the technical side of that, you know, is higher. Um, so I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, they don't want They don't necessarily feel like they have to go down that rabbit hole because they trust me to handle it because of the musical conversations we've had, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but that's, that's what I've found to be productive. You know, I don't think that's counterintuitive at all, Michael. I think that's extremely important. Um, and then beyond just having that musical conversation, just the fact that you're willing to have a conversation with them at all is is really nice. Uh, from the musicians I work with, what I hear more often than not is like when I ask them, okay, do you like a, a darker sound? Do you like a brighter sound? How do you feel about effects? Where, where do you normally have people mic your drum kit? Or just having that conversation of what do they like? What do they want? And or in also noticing that really cool guitar pedal and that really cool vintage amp, um, it, it really opens up that door of like, hey, I think what you're doing is really cool, and I think you're super cool. And hmm. then they're like, they appreciate that that acknowledgement. Um, so then they feel more comfortable coming to you with those technical things, and that's such an important thing. So I'm gl- I'm glad that you brought that up. Well, okay, I feel better about it then. So <laughs> Daniel, you you are mixing three in-ears mixes for your three artists on stage in addition to the front of house mix and you found a pretty cool um and really efficient way to do that um without having to worry too much about splitting and you know who's who's uh sharing eqs and all that stuff can you talk a little bit about your your approach to that and the solution you came up with yeah sure so what we're doing now i'm running their monitors from front of house and again again that's something that kind of came out of necessity we we bring a monitor engineer out for larger tours sometimes where we just don't think that I'm going to have enough uh, enough sight lines or enough mental capacity or whatever to be to be looking at it if we're doing like big shed tours or something like that some, sometimes we'll bring someone out but when we're doing theaters even larger theaters um, you're usually in a spot where especially with digital consoles these days and days and everything like once you kind of tweak your show for the room I'm mostly sitting back watching and making fader moves just 
intuitively based on knowing the music really well, you know. So we've uh, been able to maintain monitors from front of house for a long time. And what we've been doing the last couple of years, actually, I guess it's just the last year, is we bring a Midas Pro X out. And uh, because we're only, uh, we're usually about 30 musical inputs on stage right now. So we have tons of extra channels to work with. So I actually quadruple patch everything. I've got a front of house channel, and then I've got a channel for each one of the guys on stage. And those are all assigned to pop groups, and their mixes are post-fader. So if I get a you know a signal from the guitar player that he needs the bass DI2 up or whatever, I can very quickly just hit a pop group that's, that unfolds uh, the guitar player's entire mix, make a really quick fader move on that DI2, and then hit my front of house mix pop group again and just be back to my faders. Um, which has been really great for me. It's, I think that they've noticed as well. And then, of course, you get the side effect, which, which is a whole can of worms, but you know it's a long-term gig, so I'm willing to invest the time and energy on it. Um, it it's led to the extra benefit of everybody gets to have each channel sound the way they want it in their ears, you know? So... Um, my bass player likes to have a lot of extra high end in especially his bass channel and some other channels, which is partially, I think, a taste thing and partially a response to some uh, hearing loss that comes from years on the road. So I'm able to kind of hype that stuff up in his channels, which sounds nice and natural and present to him, where with some other people, especially myself, who's kind of sensitive to those high, high frequencies, I can... it their channels can still sound musical. You know, if, if I would, if I gave everybody his bass sounds, it would just be cutting people's heads off, you know? Mm. So it's great. And again, it's just, it's super efficient, you know? Um, a lot of people think it's a little crazy when they hear that we're doing monitors from front of house in some of the rooms that we do, but it's just all so efficient that it's generally not that big of a deal. Yeah. And, you know, watching you, in real time, kind of at sound check, how you how quickly you're able to accommodate those things without getting buried in, you know, flipping layers and you know who's who's EQ's got to go where because I mean this is something we talked about in a previous episode about mixing monitors from front of house and and I do a lot of double patching but there's still this idea of okay well you know you've got to pick this EQ is going to be this EQ and everyone that's getting that input into their mix is going to have this EQ and um, you were really able to sidestep all of that kind of you know and just get right to okay who needs what and there you go and we there's it seems like there's a lot less compromises with that approach so i thought that was a really cool way of solving that problem yeah it's great and it and it does a lot of stuff that i think work would work great for a lot a lot of bands that found themselves in that situation like uh you know a guitar player for instance that's an incredibly dynamic instrument especially in a band like the wood brothers you know i mean there are times when he is gently finger picking with his you know the flesh of his fingers and then there's times where he's just ripping with a pick and a boost pedal. And he needs to hear all those dynamics and be sensitive to them. But for other people, it leads to a lot of like, I can't hear him half the time and the other half of the time he's just blowing my ears out. So it's really great to be able to just like, okay, the other two guys get a little bit of compression on that or limiting on that, where on the guitar player's channel, it's wide open. 
It just leads to a lot of nice things like that. <laughs> Your drummer has a, I'm going to call it a, a, a prototype instrument uh, <laughs> that, that I was not exposed to uh, until I saw the show, and I believe they refer to it as a shitar. Yeah, there's not a lot of shitar players in <laughs> upstate New York. <laughs> and it's, I thought, it, from what I thought I shitar, <laughs> shitar Players Guild number 127 was based up there. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking about starting one now because it was pretty fascinating. It's it's a it's a I mean it's just a beat up guitar with a bunch of nice stuff hanging off of it, right? I mean, what's what's going on with that? I don't know if I'd call it nice, but yeah, there's stuff hanging off of it. Um, <laughs> it's a cheap guitar. You can actually go to shitar.com, spelled like guitar with a, with an sh. And uh, I I don't know if they're still selling them or not, but for a long time they were selling them. Um, and it was, you know, you would get the bass model online. Jonas has been modified a lot over the years, but he plays it as a percussion instrument. And he, and that again, that thing was born out of a necessity for efficiency because these guys were they they started out as a two piece, and then they started to expand their sound as the venues got a little bit bigger and stuff. And they had Jono, and they were trying to figure out a way to do like radio dates. Um, and also to bring a consi- they're very into sort of like a consistency of sound mm. you know not like they want to be the McDonald's the shows are always different the music's always different but they they like to have sort of their their sound and maintain it you know and that's a very unique voice that, that nobody else is out there with and it also means you can throw it in the overhead bin of a of a plane or you can throw it in the back of a runner's car or something and go do a radio hit and it's got a full range of sound. It's kind of built so that when you're playing the body of the guitar, you've got sort of a kick drum sound. He uh, has a ring on his left hand that's hitting the side of the guitar and kind of being the snare drum. And then there are some strings on the neck of the guitar that he's playing with his thumb. Uh, so his right hand is kind of kick drum with the fingers uh, on the body of the guitar. His thumb is playing some loose strings that have... Uh, all sorts of like pre- prepared piano type stuff attached to it. And then his left hand is sort of playing s- snare drum on the side of the guitar. And that's actually, uh, we have three different inputs on that thing. Um, one of them is actually an interesting one. Uh, another, th- another thing about the Wood Brothers and I that got along in a way is they're very inspired. And this is a real challenge sometimes. And it's uh, part of the warning that I always give any anyone that's going to work with us is that that band is very inspired by broken shit. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, is this family friendly? <laughs> well, I mean, Willow is actually, I got to hand it to her. She won the award. She's the first person to drop the F-bomb on the podcast. So I, I'm very proud of this award, by the way. <laughs> I'm proud of you as well. It, it was oh, just an you. emoji. It wasn't, it wasn't anything <laughs> serious. <laughs> but they are just inspired. Like Oliver's primary guitar amp, and uh, it's so important to his sound that we f- we fly with it, um, even to stuff that we're we're fully backlined and everything. Is just this? Uh, it's a little K guitar amp. They're made in like 1963. Um, uh, there's a factory in Chicago that was basically building amps to spec the same amp to spec for like three or four different uh, brands, and it's basically an old radio circuit. I think it puts out like four watts into an eight inch paper speaker and the things are not roadworthy at all at all and there have been 
lots of attempts over the years to make them roadworthy, and it, it, you can't do it without them not sounding as good. Or, or at least not sounding as much like Oliver and how he wants it to sound, you know? And, uh, like, we joke about it. It's entirely true, but it's a joke that comes up about every eight months is uh, we'll all notice that the guitar has been sounding really awesome and Oliver has just been playing his butt off because he's so inspired by the sound. And we always know that that means it's about to break. And, it, <laughs> and it's time to make sure we're checking the spare every night and making sure we have it ready to go. But he doesn't want to give up on that one because it is in its prime. Like their relationship is at its best. <laughs> And then it blows up, you know. We all we all see it coming, <laughs> and and that's just to say that's 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 how these guys operate, you know. Like Jono's got for a while. I think I think he recently removed it uh, for a long time. He had an actual frying pan, and not even a cool frying pan, like a Teflon <laughs> frying pan from two thousand and one. Um, not like those cool vintage ones you find on Reverb. But that's just how they are. And so the shitar, this is all a long way of getting the story about the shitar. Um, the one channel, we were at a festival in North Carolina one day, uh, early on in my days with the Wood Brothers, when we were still sort of figuring out our mic kit and everything and making changes here and there. We were at a festival, and I think one of our DIs went bad maybe, and we used a house DI, which ended up being one of those... Um, uh, what are they called? The Clark Technic ones with the weird. Oh yeah, cover for on sure. It? Yeah, with the rubber. Yep. Yeah, and they're active. They're active DIs, and uh, someone threw one of those on stage at a festival in North Carolina once, uh, and I cranked it up, and it sounded incredible, like different than we'd ever heard that channel of the shitar sound, and. We learned later, I learned later because I was at front of house and, and uh, I don't even think I had a tech or anything on that show. So the communication with the house crew was kind of limited and, and fast because it was a festival setting and it just worked. So we rolled with it and I learned that we were running it without phantom power. So it was basically, huh. so it was basically broken. <laughs> and, you know, we had to put like 80 dB of, or, you know, whatever I had on the desk, like 45 dB of gain. And I still had to goose the fader like 10 dB to get it in the mix, but it just sounded fantastic. So, of course, the next day we bought one and uh, we started rolling with that. And we uh, started running into a situation where sometimes at festivals we would get a lot of hum on the channel and we would have to, um, We'd have to decide, all right, fine, we'll run it the way it's supposed to be run, and we put Phantom Power on it. And then it would sound really great technically, but not nearly as cool, you know? So we tried to get to the bottom of it, and we figured out what it was, was um, we had these long cable runs. We were putting so much gain at the console end that we were just picking up a lot of, a lot of line noise. So um, we got one of those uh, cloud lifters that adds like 40 dB on the front end. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. That way, you know, we threw another, <laughs> we threw like another two hundred bucks at the problem, so that we could run this broken DI. <laughs> that's just the sound they love. <laughs> so it's really challenging, you know. And that's what I mean about like, you know, your job is to make things. You know, the old sort of crew adage is like, you want every day to be the same day, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's great. That is what you want. You want consistency. You want stuff to work. You want structure. But it 
it can take all the fun out of it if there is this uh, element of perfection to everything all the time. You know, uh, you know. I was thinking, watching the show. I mean, you've the, he's got. There's moments when he's playing the drum set with one hand, and the, he's playing a keyboard with the other hand, and he's got a some sort of crazy tambourine that sounds sort of like a rototom with all kinds of. I mean, there's just all kinds of super unique sounds coming down your snake, but at the same time, you've got a really traditional, warm, full, well balanced mix, and so it, you know, it would seem approaching that mix you kind of have to rethink some things that you may have traditionally done because you don't have the traditional instrumentation on stage i mean how how was that process for you um how was that process for me well you know it's been interesting it keeps it interesting for me too and and the thing about john is he's got so many different worlds on his riser up there so like you were saying he's got not even a traditional drum kit really he's got a kick and a snare he just recently added a second snare and then he's got uh, like a washboard, a frying pan, um, and a pandero, uh, which is like a Brazilian tambourine, which we mic from underneath and use that basically as like a floor tom. Actually, I had uh, I was probably the only guy that out there, or one of the only guys out there that had a leg up on that situation because I used to tour with Stan Moore. And uh, that's a, that was something that he did as well. And actually, the Pandero that John uses a Stanton Moore signature model. But anyway, um, then he's also got a, a digital keyboard, which is kind of, in a way, very off-brand um, to have a, a digital synth up there, uh, you know, kind of mimicking these keyboard sounds. But, of course, in the broken spirit of the Wood Brothers, we run that through, like, uh, old 60s champ that the speaker can't quite handle it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and he actually, he goes, he chose the keyboard he chose, uh, which is a Korg SV-1, which I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying because he has a relationship with them. Uh, part of the reason that he loves that so much is you can actually detune on a, on a key-by-key basis. So, like, for his Wurlitzer sound, every digital Wurlitzer in the sound, dig, digital Wurlitzer sample in the world always sounds a little unnatural because every Wurlitzer, if you've ever toured with one, is always in a state of being a little bit broken. And um, and so he he goes up on those higher notes and he detunes them all individually so the Wurlitzer is never in tune, even though we have the ability to have it in tune. <laughs> the It's going through a little amp that can't really handle it. Um, and then my job really at that point is just to capture it and not, not ruin it. You know, he's got, mm-hmm. su- he's got such cool sounds going on stage that a huge part of my sound is just, uh, a pair of XY overheads that, um, are really, really transparent and nice. And, you know, when you, it's usually the first thing I turn up uh, during the day at sound check and it's just incredible. It just sounds like you just turn, you're turning the drum kit up. You know, yep. you're turning the stage volume up. Sounds great. And then, you know, we supplement and, and do a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of studio magic, but try not to make it too slick or anything. And that's it. Uh, the biggest challenge is honestly is just that, uh, especially the bass, there's just so much wood on stage, you know, like there's so much that can't be controlled. All the instruments are so responsive to... Um, humidity and the architecture and the temperature and all that stuff chris is playing a hundred year old 
uh, it just turned 100 this year. 100-year-old double bass, which we have a couple pickups and a mic on. And that thing sounds wildly different every, not even every night, but from sound check to show. Mm. It's always incredibly different. So you just have to be willing to evolve and like give up the idea of perfection. There's always some stage buzz, you know, no matter how much I've tried or how many experts I've consulted or how many different solutions we've come up with for power management and stuff. There's always a buzz somewhere and you just have to get over it Um, because it ruins the, it ruins it kind of for the band if you chase it too hard during their time. If that makes sense. It it does make sense. And I've actually had at least two artists tell me like, I don't care about the buzz, let it go, it's rock and roll. You know, like <laughs> they kind of want the buzz. It's like they're used to it. And yeah. so when it's gone, they're, they're not like, what's going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's gone, it's great, but it's also like, you know, sound check is also rehearsal for these guys, you know? They're they're working on new material and stuff. They don't want to spend forty five minutes chasing someone something that nobody in the audience is going to notice anyway. Yeah. It's um, another running joke we have is there was a festival one time that we were advancing. It was a super 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 duper low production festival. Great vibe, but very low production. You know, not the kind of circumstances we're usually used to working in. And uh, when I was trying to advance, I remember <laughs> the person I was advancing said, look, this is about the music. It's not about the crew guys. And <laughs> it was a little offensive at the time, but it's become sort of a running joke when you're dealing with little problems like that. It's just like being a little bit uh, self-aware of the fact that there's going to be 1,500 people in the room there's going to be a little bit of a crowd din and everybody's going to be so amped up to see these guys play some amazing music. No one is going to let like a little buzz that's 20 dB bef- be- below the music bother them. You know, I'm, I'm the only one that's going to be having a bad day yep. because of that. If I let myself have a bad day because of that. So I try to, you know, you try to keep your eye on the, on the music. Well, I mean, that's a great kind of, you know, it's all about the perspective of it. And, you know, the system engineering angle that for me, I mean, we'll, we will get caught up on like, I don't know, should I add another half a millisecond to this front fill? Like, yeah. all right, you're done. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. at that point, you're done. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the time for that. You know, like I'll, I'll be right there with you at, at 11 in the morning or whatever, when it's time to be doing that. But when you've got a band on stage and, you know, and even even before the band's on stage and it's just the crew, it's like, are we all going to spend, you know, it's worth it if you can spend 20 minutes and get things a little cleaner and everybody has a nicer day. But you, the bulk of your day doesn't always need to be about the amp from 1963 that's about to break has a little <laughs> bit of a hum on it. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to notice. For sure. Uh, all right, Will, I'm going to let you one more chance to... Uh, pick daniel's brain here what do you got for us oh the final chance oh boy the now there's a lot chance. of pressure oh you want time to think about it i was hoping i'd trigger someone into singing <laughs> i mean <laughs> well there you go you got it you got it done yep here here you go i mean you first brought me singing in a on the podcast too i think I, another oh, first I'm just we racking have. up the awards here um well i think I, I don't have a question at this time. I, I've just been enjoying so much listening to your thought process, Daniel. So thank you so much for sharing it with all of us. Um, 
I think I I, I kind of just want to share with y'all that uh, a dear friend of mine who is like my right arm when we work shows together. We're both kind of the crew leads at, at Bass Concert Hall right now. Um, and I would be lost without him. He constantly reminds me of little problems like that where it's like, you know, there's this one little buzz or there's this one little problem where it bothers the hell out of me. And it just I, it's driving me absolutely bananas. And he will turn to me and just go, you're over engineering again. <laughs> and he that's his just his blanket term is you're over engineering calm down just focus on on the beautiful moment that we're trying to create here so i, I think you could extend i think you you could extend that to your future tour managing career too you know, oh, there's, yeah. there's there's a touch thing there's a such thing to over tour managing as well mm, you know mm-hmm. what uh, what can you expand on that a little well, I just it depends on the artist, of course. But again, it's mm-hmm. like you don't want to sight you you don't want to sap the life out of everything. Sure, you don't want to sure. you don't want to take you want to take the important surprises out. You want to take you want to take the surprises that are going to lead to like you know a bad day, the local mm-hmm. crew arguing with your crew. You know you, you want to mm-hmm. take those surprises out. You want you want to set expect expectations for everybody that they can rely on. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know. A little, a little wrench in things every once in a while can be fun and challenging. Keep things fresh. Sure, and, keep you on your and, toes. You know, keep you on your toes. Make it feel. Mm-hmm. You know, it, sometimes it makes you remember why you wanted to be on a rock and roll tour. Right, right. You that know? that you know, living in the moment sort of feeling that we all kind of just weirdly adore. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do want to just tell people who are listening who aren't familiar with the Wood Brothers music, check it out. It's a blast. You know, it's there's some of these concerts that I work on where it's like if you don't know the artist, you're not familiar with the music, you're kind of going like, ah, you know, they're pretty good, but I don't really get it. But, I mean, this was a show where you could just walk in cold and have no context and have had an awesome time. And um, I brought my friend Tim with me who uh, is one of our programmers for Smart. And, and you know, we, we let him out of the cave a little bit <laughs> to come out and, <laughs> and see and see the real world of rock and roll. And he had a blast. And it was just – it was a great concert, super high energy, fantastic musicians, great mix, great sound, uh, great show. So I uh, definitely want to encourage people to check that out. Um, there's all kinds of great stuff on the – on the interwebs and the YouTubes and all those things. Um, Daniel, thanks again for, uh, for your time, man. It was really cool to have you on the show and, and for, uh, for sharing your knowledge. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, I yes, had a thank blast. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you.